Simpson, I'm one of the ministers. Uh, it would be really helpful for you to have your Bibles open at Isaiah 7, 8, 9. We're actually going to take a bit of a run through all three chapters to an extent. It's all right, we're not going to go through verse by verse, we're not going to be here till lunchtime, we'll get out in reasonable time. In fact, we're doing something, I'm going to do something a little bit different with you today. I'm actually going to take you through some of the names that come up. We'll look at what they mean and how they fit in with Isaiah's prophecy and what comes uh, in the coming of Jesus. So make sure you have your Bibles open, we'll read it together as we go through. But I don't know if you ever... uh, ever thought about your name? What does your name mean? Now, I know some traditions have very strong things about what their names mean. One of my friends who was born in Hong Kong, his name meant something that was so unlike him that you sort of go, what? They called you Blossom? Really? Yes, it's sort of a very masculine Blossom, he said, but yes, they called me Blossom. Now, I don't know how to say that in in uh, Cantonese, so please don't hold that against me. But there are all sorts of traditions about names, aren't there? My sister's middle name was Edith because my grandmother, my paternal grandmother's name was Edith. Uh, Or, as you know, some of you will know, that in many Chinese families, the grandparents choose the name of the child because that's their right, that's their position, and it's supposed to be there to bring good luck or success or whatever it might be. Then there are names that you may or may not like. Uh, my nickname at school was Frog. Not because, of course, that they all thought I was a prince in disguise. Not. Uh, no, because they thought my face was like a frog's. Blacktown boys were never known for their subtlety and kindness. Now, When you raise things like that, when you ask questions like that, perhaps it brings back some painful memories for you. Because no matter what what tradition you come from, names matter because they sort of identify who you are. You are your name to an extent. There are meaningful names, like we called my daughter Erin Joy because she brought us such joy and still does. Well, Isaiah introduces us to four names in chapters 7 through 9, and we're going to look briefly at each one, seeing what difference they make to the people of the time, the people of God, Israel, and finally to us. Now, the first name belongs to Isaiah's own son, Shear Jashub. Now, if you open your Bibles and you look at chapter 7, verse 3, uh, now, this is why it's important to have your Bibles to follow along, uh, you'll see there's a little footnote next to the name, Shear Jashub. I think it's B in the, uh, in the Pew Bibles that we have. These names, Shear Jashub, are Hebrew words and they have a meaning. So if you look down the bottom, it'll give you the meaning of the name. It means a remnant will return. Now, some people's name means things like Frank, you know, truthful, or Janet, beloved of God. And my aunt was Lily and a less lily sort of person you could never meet. But Shiajashub's name means a remnant will return. Now, this name is double-edged because it sounds good, doesn't it, in a sense? A remnant will return, you'll come back, there will be people saved. But it's actually really a sad name because it says that only a remnant is coming back. The rest of us 
are not going to survive the disaster that will come. So Isaiah goes out to meet, uh, to meet Ahaz, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shiarjashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. So what's happening here is Ahaz is checking the defences of the city. He's gone to the wall. And Isaiah takes along this son and says, Here's my boy a remnant will return. Now, imagine the irritation that would be to a king trying to prepare the defences of his city against a huge enemy, because Assyria is coming. And he takes along the boy and he says, you know, only a few are going to survive, but at least some will come back. I mean, how would that make you feel as the king? Every time his name is mentioned, it's an irritation to the king, because his name speaks of destruction. Yes, not complete destruction, but destruction. So Isaiah meets the king and says, verse 4, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart, trust God, he says. But Isaiah's son, Shiarjashub, he's this sign, only a remnant will return, not the nation and perhaps not even the king will survive. The second son is the one we heard about last week, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel brings us right to the Christmas story because what we're doing over these few weeks, these three weeks in Isaiah, is thinking about how Isaiah looks forward to the coming of the Christ. And we saw this last week when Ben led us through an excellent study in Isaiah chapter 7. This second son is probably, though we're not sure, the king's son. And the child is to be given this amazing name, verse 14 of chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, to an extent, that's really reassuring, isn't it? God is with us. God's on our side. God is not going to forsake us until you stop and start to think what that really means. When you start to think about who God is, the holy and righteous God who cannot stand even a hint of sin amongst people, he is going to be with us. He's going to be amongst us. It's a scary thought to an extent. The holy, pure, perfect God with us. And here, God gives Ahaz a choice. Choose a sign, he says. Choose anything. Ahaz refuses. Now, Ahaz was not one of the good kings, right? There are all these good kings and bad kings in Israel and, and Judah over this time. Ahaz is not one of the good kings, which is why his country is, is uh, judged here. But Ahaz refuses in a false sort of pie. I couldn't possibly choose a sign. So God says, like it or not, I'm going to give you a sign. The virgin will have a child and he'll be called Emmanuel. And before Emmanuel is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, Assyria, the great ancient world kingdom, will come and destroy everything. So here is this child. God is with us. But as a sign of judgment rather than a sign of salvation at this point. Perhaps he's with us in the midst of judgment. Now that is not what you expect from a happy Christmas message, is it? 
Here is, you know, here we are at Christmas time. What do we think about Emmanuel? God with us. The holy God with us. The judging God with us. And look at chapter 8, verse 8. Emmanuel is mentioned again. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over with all its banks and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread rings will cover the breadth of your land. Emmanuel. And again, verse 10, devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Emmanuel. Because of Emmanuel. It's a strange name, Emmanuel, for it is both a symbol of judgment and of salvation in judgment. And so we come to the third son. He's mentioned in chapter 8, verse 1, and Fergie did a wonderful job of pronouncing his name. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Mahershalal Hashbaz. This is Isaiah's son. And what a name to give him. Though you've got to admit, it's a bit of a mouthful. I am so thankful. My name's Ken. <laughs> Imagine introducing yourself at the bank. Hi, my name's Mahal Hashwaz. How do you spell that, sir? Uh, the name actually has a meaning. The, main, the name means quick to plunder and swift to the spoil. What a name to have when the nation is under threat of invasion. He's this walking signpost of judgment and destruction. Everywhere he goes, every time he gives his name, every time it's heard, the judgment of God is being declared. For the people will be destroyed. The floodwaters of the Assyrian conquest will wash away Syria and wash away Israel. And it will come right up to the necks of the southern kingdom, Judah. But they will recede, as his brother's name says, because a remnant will remain. Remember, Shear Jashub. Assyria will not have the last word. Its power cannot overcome God. But only a remnant will remain. Because the Assyrians are going to be quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. And Isaiah's listeners in 8 verse, 6, 8 verse 16 are told to do this. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction amongst my disciples. You see, this will stand as a testimony, as a warning, as a, as a witness that God has done all of this. It's not outside of his control. It's completely in his hands. Even though his people seem to come under the power of Assyria, God will be in their midst like a huge rock, a rock that you can use for safety. But it's a rock that the people of Israel don't trust. Look at verse 14. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. They will stumble over him. They will fall because of it. And so the people facing war, in all of their lostness, in all of this, will turn where? 
verse 19. They will consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter. But he says, you're the people of God. Don't go off to witchcraft to find out what's happening. Listen to God. Verse 19, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. But do you remember what the testimony was? The problem is that when you listen to God, you get Isaiah and his boys. The remnant will return and swift to the plunder. And for most of us, if that's the message of God, then I think we'd often rather go to the fortune tellers and get some good news for a change, someone who will give us what we want to hear. But the problem is that Emmanuel, God is with us, means that yes, they will be saved, a remnant will be saved, but only after judgment. And there's the problem. And so the people in the north sit in the shadow of the death of darkness. Of course, I've got my maps. Here's my maps. Uh, there's Syria up in the north, and the northern tribes of Israel up there, you can see circled, are Zebulun and Naphtali. So they're sort of the buffer zone between the rest of Israel and, and Syria. And then it's up from the north, because when Assyria comes, even though it's sort of in the east, it actually travels around the desert and comes down from the north. You see, the invasion comes from the north through Zebulun and Naphtali, and so they're the ones sitting in darkness. They're the ones sitting in the threat of Assyria, waiting. But then we see the fourth son, the fourth name. For the people in darkness will see a light, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It's a light at the end of this very dark tunnel, the light of a new day and a day of victory and a day of peace. Such complete peace that people will get rid of their gear for war. See verse 5, every, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Why? Because they won't be needed anymore. That's the great news. Because what's his name? Well, his name is actually much longer, and in some senses it's much more significant. See there in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of peace for he will be the heir of the kingdom of david he will be the new king that will come and draw it all together the kingdom of god that will never end a kingdom of righteousness and justice verse 7 of the greatness of his government and of peace there will be no end he will reign on david's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever Great news. That was written, we think, we're pretty sure, 732 BC. And here we are, Christians in 2021, as members of that kingdom, if you're a truster in the Lord Jesus. That kingdom which goes to the ends of the earth and is now, has now been operating for the last 2,000 years 
and which will last forevermore. A kingdom that, that God and only God could bring. No mere king, no human king could do this. And so did you see that very last verse, that verse 7? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is all in God's hands. It will happen because God is doing it. So what's in a name? When the fourth son comes, we see that Isaiah's chapter 7 through 9 are both easy and difficult because it's pointing forward to the true son who was not to come for another 725 years. It's easy because all of this happened to some extent in Isaiah's time. We know the history of this period and we know what happened. God used the Assyrians to destroy the coalition of Israel and Syria. The ten northern tribes of Israel were scattered, never to be seen again. Ancient Syria was defeated and destroyed and Assyria didn't stop there. They went into Judah, they went into Israel and they destroyed the villages of the towns of Judah until only Jerusalem was left. This is a picture of a very famous siege, the siege of Lachish, which is a, a little town to the southwest of Bethlehem, southwest of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, that Sennacherib, the general, camped around and destroyed, and we have reliefs of it. Then they laid siege to Jerusalem in 700 BC, and it was about to be destroyed. When suddenly, and for reasons we actually don't know why, Sennacherib just, just, he left. He went back home. The king of Assyria brought them back, packed up and went home. The great conquering empire left Jerusalem unconquered. The waters rose right up to the neck, but life continued. That's easy to understand all of this because it happened and you can see how they would say God is with us, God preserved that little remnant. And if it hadn't been God with them, they would have been destroyed like every other city had been destroyed. So God is with them in salvation and God was with them in judgment. You see, having God with you is a double-edged sword. And it is our problem with Christmas. People don't mind the idea of Emmanuel, God with them, when it's a baby in a manger. That's easy. The baby doesn't threaten anyone, does he? But it's because they're not thinking that this baby is actually the holy and righteous God who will be angry with our sinfulness, with our rebellion, with our, the things we do wrong. You see, you don't invite God to come into your home unless your home is spotless. If you got home today and there was a man at the front door saying the Queen is coming tomorrow, whether you're a Republican or not, I bet you the rest of the day is spent cleaning, tidying, getting stuff ready, cooking. And you know, and I know, that it's not unless God is the Saviour who is coming to save, that it starts to make sense. 
It's easy to understand this story because God was with them, Emmanuel, because the destruction was quick to plunder. And within just 20 years, the whole world fell under the influences of Assyria. And the remnant did return. Shear Jeshul did happen. Though Assyria conquered everything else, Jerusalem stood. And there was this little remnant. But, you know, it's difficult to understand because it's only when Jesus is born that we see the true Emmanuel arrive. The strange thing is, though, that through the rest of his life, Jesus is never called Emmanuel. His name will be Emmanuel, but as we read earlier in chapter 1, verse 20, that's the only time he's actually referred to as Emmanuel, picking up this prophecy. God is truly with us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he was the Lord God, the Son of God, God becoming human. But when God is with us, the very next thing that happens in Matthew's Gospel is the judgment and suffering which took place with the massacre of the little boys in Bethlehem. The killing of the boys of Bethlehem was exactly what the paranoid Herod the Great would do when he's threatened, but it's actually also the nature of God with us that it's this double-edged sword. For when God comes into the world, the conflict with evil reaches this crescendo. Jesus came preaching in Galilee, preaching to those who are sitting in the darkness of Zebulun and Naphtali, but he is God's stone, he's God's chosen rock, the rock for salvation that the nation of Judah will stumble over, as Isaiah prophesied they would. See, he came to free those living in the shadow of death But the way he came to free those living in the shadow of death was to experience the judgment of God in himself, in his own death. You see, God is preparing us in Isaiah for the coming of Emmanuel. And if we do not read Isaiah, we do not understand that Jesus was born to suffer and die, was to come to be judged by God. The kingdom would come through pain and opposition and the forces of evil trying to destroy him. See, Christ's birth is a wonderful thing, but it's actually all about his death because that's what he came to do, pointing us toward that moment of the cross when he conquered sin and defeated death. And it's only when we meet Jesus, risen from the dead, that we finally grasp his most wonderful name. For he is indeed the wonderful counsellor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, whose kingdom of justice and righteousness is the kingdom which knows no end. Because the name that is given to him in Matthew's gospel and is used is not Emmanuel, it's Jesus, which means saviour. Look at chapter 1, verse 21 of Matthew up on the screen. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So he was called Emmanuel, God with us, but he was also named Jesus, Saviour. The one who in the midst of the judgment that will come will save people. And it's because he is Saviour that we can invite him into our home. Dirty as it may be, with all the history of shame and failure and lies and self-deception, 
we can invite him in. Because though he is Emmanuel, God with us, he comes as Jesus to save his people from their sins. See, Jesus comes in both judgment and salvation. You can't have God with you without having both judgment and salvation. But he comes, though, primarily not just to judge, but to save. Because he comes to save by bearing the judgment himself, dying for us in our place in order to bring us that salvation. See, Isaiah 1 to 9 is God's preparation for Christmas. He gave us the clues, he gave us the ideas as to what would happen, as to why we would need a saviour when his son Emmanuel came amongst us to save us and it would mean suffering, it would mean his suffering, it would mean the apparent conquest by the forces of evil, it would mean the cross of Calvary and in that judgement of God on sinfulness, the remnant repent, return and find forgiveness and find a new start, which is a marvellous thing for us all. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that in all of history you have been preparing your word, our world, to receive your Son for its judgment and salvation. Please open our hearts to the good news of great joy that is Jesus Christ, born into our world to save all who believe by his death on the cross. Make us thankful and joyful for this wonderful gift that brings us life in abundance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.